A trio braves the night, short days and cold sleeps. Waiting is easy. We are often waiting without being aware of it. When we are in the waiting place, we externalize control. We let ourselves off the hook. Whatever we're waiting for, we will often put more things on hold than we need to while we wait for the one thing. Excuses create excuses until we're drowning in a happy ball pit of comfortable apathy. The van was still on its way, leaving me with the heel to express around Bozeman, Montana. But I had to ask myself why waiting for the van was stopping me from working out. I couldn't be sure why I wasn't making travel plans for my next stops or learning new skills that would allow me to contribute to others. After all, asking what can I learn and how can I contribute are the primary two objectives that I would use to guide my every action and decision on this adventure. I could have been recording videos or, God forbid, catching up on the hours of podcast material I had recorded before I left. Why wasn't I doing any of that? The initial answer was simple. I didn't want to. Digging a little deeper, maybe it was that I wasn't ready to move forward yet. Maybe I needed this purgatory. Or maybe this is what they meant by human being, not human doing. It was hard to shake the feeling, however, that I was just being lazy. I didn't know how to tell the difference. How do you know when you need rest or when it's time to get off your ass and make the dreams happen? It would be easy to forget the massive effort, the bottled up emotions, the sense of uncertainty and heartbreak that I had forced myself to postpone processing out of logistical necessity. For the entire month in Calgary dismantling my reality, there simply wasn't time to both feel it all and do it all. But was there time and I just wasted it? No. I'd lived every moment, nothing was wasted, so then, if it had been possible to feel more without compromising doing everything I needed to do, then I just didn't have the capability. I don't know how to feel any more than I felt. We often forget that when others fall short of what we consider to be a reasonable standard, it's likely that they aren't showing up any more than they know how to. This is why we should first assume good intentions. Otherwise, we start saying things like, that's how they are when they're pushing me away, or they're not willing to talk about it. It might actually be that they don't know how yet. They haven't learned yet, and something about this conflict strikes a nerve that they haven't navigated before. It might also mean that they aren't aware that there is a better way to communicate in this situation and that there's something for them to learn. But that's why your expectations will always fail you. Why think of them as the opponent when really it's just that you have more learned emotional capacity than they do in this situation? What if you both sat on the same side of the table and decided to explore how they are feeling together? You might be saying, that was my intention the whole time and they shut down on me. And to that, I would say, you need to both verbally agree again that the goal is connection and the path forward is curiosity, both about yourself and about each other, in order to discover your needs. And then, through that curiosity, if you discover that they were asking for space, or something like that, then you might realize that the space is a valid need, and the new journey for you both is to learn how to take space constructively. I might have been waiting for the van, but more than that, I was waiting to feel again. So perhaps, I thought, that justifies me not fully engaging with my project and full potential, I was still numb to my new reality, to the loss of what felt like everything in my life except a select few memories, a few roughly honed skills, and many meaningful relationships converted into physical and even emotionally long-distance connections. 
I felt a pending emotional awareness of loss. The only compensation, the only consolation so far was a foggy and ambiguous dream of what I might next become or discover. While I was mentally mumbling my way through a long list of ignored tasks that I thought I ought to be doing, subconsciously I knew that sitting hunched over editing audio and reliving some of the raw conversations from mere weeks ago, or planning some sort of dogmatic travel itinerary, these were not the things that I needed to be focusing on yet. What I needed was rest. I needed peace. For now, I needed to balance my days with gentle reflection, connection, and solitude. As much as I needed to release the attachment to my old life, I needed to break up with the current definition of productivity that plagues our usual lives. Sleep is productive. Walks are productive. Taking pictures of pleasant things that we pass by on the street, that is productive. If I was going to be a writer and enjoy writing, I needed to make sure that I approached the creative lifestyle creatively and not like it was just another project to manage. I believed I was acting from a place of self-acceptance and intrinsic motivation rather than empty efforts to alleviate external pressures. I believed this, and no one was there to tell me otherwise. Flow state is something we often tend to chase, when in reality it must be nurtured. Like anything else, there is a recipe. Combine an interest, a talent, some safe space for it to breathe, a mental openness to experiment with whatever comes to mind, and the self-affirmation that results do not determine your value, so we need to enjoy the experience of discovery. We need to connect with the joy and the puzzle in order to do our best. And, of course, when we do our work from a place of flow state, we accomplish much more and internalize both the results and the process with a deeper sense of satisfaction. Instead of forcing myself into the narrative of justifying my existence to the few hundred people that either supported this adventure or were just curious about what would come of it, I decided not to produce much of anything yet. These weekly emails, for now, I decided would be enough. Instead, I would focus on living in the present moment, taking in the experiences available, and work towards sharing it in more ways later on. And more importantly, I would stop waiting. The adventure wasn't starting when the van got here. It had already started. This was it. And it would begin not with chasing wild stories and intense connections, but with sitting on benches and going with the flow. I had to shed the artificial pressure of needing to prove myself through massive, urgent results and for once, just let myself be. With that shift, I started looking for simple ways to help others, returning to one of the two core values of this adventure. I asked the boys what tasks they needed to accomplish each day. Andrew wanted to clean up the yard, which was drowning in yellowed leaves and dusty debris. Great, I clapped, let's get to it. While we were at it, we took the recycling to the community receptacle. Since the first morning on Story Street, I discovered that the boys had been battling a jammed door on the side of the house that wouldn't open when he turned the handle. The solution thus far had been to kick it open, pure force. If two or three strikes didn't suffice, they'd mutter under their breaths and trudge around to the front door instead. Using funds from the subscribers to the Substack blog where this all began, I spent $25 purchasing a new handle for the door. I felt disproportionately pleased with myself for replacing all the hardware. I thought it would be more complicated than it turned out to be. After I finished, each roommate opened and closed the door several times, marveling at how smooth and luxurious the new experience was. I'd open it and close it sometimes when I was walking by, 
it really was a nice new handle. I silently celebrated that I wouldn't be woken up at the crack of dawn by the crack of the door when the boys went out to ski, class, or work. I needed peace, and I was creating peace by helping others. I connected with Andrew through productivity and with Connor through wildly erratic conversations, usually accompanied by a soundtrack of Mac Miller and Coltrane records. Dude, he said, you need to learn how to actually rest. Just sit here. Do nothing. Take in every note of the song. We don't need to speak. If you're going to work hard and play hard, you better make time to rest hard. Stop believing you need to be doing something. This 20-year-old was brilliant. While the minds of Andrew and Connor were fascinating to explore, it was Caleb's mind that seemed most similar to my own. His industrious yet zen mental state was familiar, but he could still surprise me. Caleb was the first person I'd ever heard say, you're addicted to listening to music. And I thought about that for a very long time. On one particularly warm, sunny Sunday, Caleb had a little more pep than usual and out of nowhere seemed determined to have a great day. Schwa, he smiled, making direct eye contact with me, a rarity. I hadn't seen him this upbeat since the cold plunge a week earlier. Let's go and see if we can make a few bucks busking on Main Street. Oof. I'm not exactly busking material. I've tried it. After 15 years of playing in bands, I still didn't know any popular songs on guitar. And I wasn't much for memorizing lyrics yet, either. I could probably work my way through one Taylor Swift track and 3AM by Mashbox 20, but that's about it. That's not a show, even if I did manage to remember all the words and chords. Plus, I hadn't played much guitar in the last few years. But come on, I brought it. If I could light myself on fire and see what the new me looked like, why not make playing guitar for others part of that identity? After everything uncomfortable I had accomplished in the last month by leaving, I was definitely not going to duck out of something as uncomfortable as simply playing guitar on the street. I didn't really have any excuses not to try. Dude, yes, I'm in, but let's really do this. Put on some clothes that make you feel like a fucking god. Uh, I don't have any clothes like that, he said. What are you going to wear? I disappeared to the basement and returned in the outfit I would forever call the full schwa. Black shirt with some sort of snakeskin jeans I'd bought at a thrift store for a music festival. The big hat and one of the few pairs of sunglasses that I'd brought with me. Dude, are you serious? He laughed at the eccentricity he didn't know I had. Caleb, I grinned. When you dress like this, people don't see the clothes. They feel the energy. They see the way that you're doing what you like. They see that you don't give a fuck about fitting in or external acceptance, and people get inspired by that. It's a costume, sure, but by stepping out of the social norm and into the absurd, it actually becomes a beacon of connection with the confident, passionate people you actually want to connect with. You'll see. Put on these sunglasses and grab your cajon. We set up on the corner with the most sun and pedestrians, right in front of the biggest outdoor apparel store on Main Street. Caleb sat on his cajon. To complete my entirely ostentatious look, my seat was a two-foot-tall white plastic Roman pillar that had been previously used to prop open the bent screen door. We are gods, Caleb, as I opened my guitar case in front of us and sprinkled a few bills to get us started. We are having an extraordinary day, Caleb, and this street needs us. It wasn't ego, but I was definitely compensating to counter the narrative whispered by my insecurity. The gap between how we feel right now and our best self 
That gap is filled with the insecurities we allow to live in our minds. We can close that gap by reminding ourselves that the insecurities are creating space we don't need, and they are not to be trusted. Not only are they false, but they are in the way of where we could be right now. In lieu of knowing any songs, we just improvised goofy rhymes, interacting with whoever walked by with whatever came to mind. We teased people with, she's got holes in her jeans, not the shyest knees I ever seen. We called out to a man walking a dog. I've seen a German shepherd, but I've never seen German sheep. For about 10 minutes, we carried on entertaining some hyper young boys and their antsy dad while mom was dawdling in the store behind us. They would have been bored, but instead they engaged with whatever prompt I would ask them to answer and they'd laugh at the silly rhymes we'd work them into. When mom came out, dad gave us $10 and thanked us for keeping the rowdy boys in a good mood. At least, that's what his eyes seemed to say. No problem, my man. That's why we're here. An hour later, we'd only made 20 bucks and the afternoon was cooling off. We called it a success, both for simply trying and for having fun and celebrated with a beer back at the house. Nearly two weeks after I had arrived in Montana, I received the much-anticipated call with the same excitement as if I was a high school senior getting a call from the college sports team offering me a scholarship. The van was finally confirmed to arrive the day before American Thanksgiving. A few days later, when the transport truck rolled into town on the coldest night yet, I watched the trucker confidently reverse the van off the trailer. It was music to my ears listening to the joyous sounds of the 1992 Volkswagen Westphalia pop and sputter as the engine came to life. According to the friends that had gifted it to me temporarily, his name was Hober, and it was a veritable icebox after sitting on the truck for a week through the prairies. With just over 252,000 kilometers on it, my perseverance was bolstered by Hober's humming tenacity. I smiled. We would have a persistent partner in each other for this adventure. I drove straight to the house and slid open the side door to see nearly every possession I owned all in one place. I sighed deeply and paused a moment. This was a relief and an accomplishment, but it was also punctuating the beginning of whatever was yet to come. That night, it was too late to unpack and organize the van, but there was one thing that I absolutely needed to attend to. I pulled out a small red cooler, wincing with gritted teeth as I lifted the lid. I had hoped the insulated container would somehow provide a degree of protection from the week-long transport through the cold, but the results were grim. Inside was a small ginseng ficus, a bonsai fig tree, that had kept me company since the first days of the pandemic and grown alongside me. His name was Wilson, and it was just him and I who had braved the early days of the lockdown and isolation together. Britt had given him to me as a housewarming gift, and Wilson had once had small, lush green leaves stuffed around a thick trunk. The above-ground root structures looked like girthy haunches, an ass that belonged in a Kanye music video. Get it, Wilson. But now, holding a small pot in my hands, it was clear that he'd had a rough time with the transition. The roots were a little too visible, the soil had frozen and compacted. Where there had once been a full head of green leaves, there was now a sorry rainbow of greens, browns, and yellows, and far less plumage overall. He was clearly balding from the stress. I brought Wilson inside and set him next to some of the other lush plants on the kitchen table, right next to the sunniest window. Here you go, buddy. Time to start healing, I smiled. I picked off the dead leaves. I fucking love this plant, and I wasn't going to lose him. We had a future to discover together. 
I stood over him as if he was in the hospital bed with the slow beeping of a weak EKG. As I willed him to survive, I realized that just as he'd had a tough time with the transition, I probably had too. I just hadn't hooked up the monitor to my own heartbreak. When I woke up the next morning, I spent most of the day in the back alley, unpacking the van, assessing the utility and value of each item before choosing to repack it. What do I have that I don't need, and what do I need that I don't have? It was clear that I had about twice the clothes I needed. The cooler itself had to go. There was already a fridge in the van. The camping supplies seemed redundant. Imagine me leaving the van to stay in a tent, as if I needed an adventure on my adventure and an escape from my escape. The bike was an awkward passenger since I had to pull it out of the van every time I needed to use the bed or access the kitchen. Still, I didn't know what the future would hold, so I was reluctant to be too aggressive with the purge. Maybe I would like camping. Maybe the bike was worth the haul. I decided that this would be a process. For a while, I would have far too many things jammed into far too little space. But I would gradually leave items behind, either via sale or donation, as it became more apparent what possessions were manageable. And of course, I'd discover the hard way what I needed and didn't have. Hober and its contents, just like me and my ideas, we would all evolve as we go. You don't get to perfectly prepare for life, and that's okay. I'd work with what I have and build from there. For my first trick, I would test out the entire experience for an inaugural night. By late afternoon, when I'd finished organizing as best as I could, I left Wilson on the table with his plant friends for the night and jumped in the van. Driving somewhat aimlessly, I was immediately confronted with a problem I knew I would face repeatedly, almost every single day. If you're going to sleep in the van, where will you park it? It's technically illegal most places for me to sleep in a vehicle, which is actually insane the more I thought about it. Generally speaking, it's illegal to lie down and sleep for free at night. You need property or you need to pay for a hotel or trade your freedom for a jail cell or hide. If you don't have a title, a lease, a permit or a sentence, move along, pal. You got to pay to play here. We forget that we were born as natural, free animals into this glorious floating planet with a unique combination of quirks and capabilities that are perfectly compatible with nature, but not necessarily with this version of society. We forget that our diversities are not a disability until society tells us that they are. But to whatever degree you aren't actively participating in our capitalistic, destructive, and exploitative existence, you are punished proportionately by society for society's own shortcomings and labeled with any number of diagnoses. All the land has been claimed and all claimed land is governed and all governed land demands its dictates are complied with. One of them? No sleeping somewhere you aren't paying for. Being awake is expensive, but your nightly dream has a price tag too. What is it about seeing someone sleep in so-called public that bothers us so much? What if our reaction is actually just a symptom of our own insecurity? We call homeless people lazy, but I've never met a happy person that didn't want to contribute, at least to their own well-being. There's always something in laziness that's hurting, that needs attention, help, community support. But instead of creating structures to address those deepest traumas and resultant limiting beliefs, we have collectively agreed to kick you while you're laying down. I didn't want to draw attention to my urban camping trip, but I also didn't want to hide in alleys and dark corners. Walmarts are famous for letting RVs spend the night in their parking lots, but that's just not a great vibe. 
Maybe in front of a house with a for sale sign in front of the yard, perhaps on the edge of a random field outside of town, a church, a school. The key was, where could I enjoy the experience without disturbing anyone? I drove around looking for the perfect answer. It took longer than I expected and realized that this problem would likely take up more of my day each day than I liked. Oh yeah, that's it, I smiled. Just on the edge of Bozeman, I saw a golf course and a massive clubhouse. It was closed for the winter and strikingly scenic. I drove down the golf cart path until I was situated, obscured from the main road behind the timber frame building and overlooking the first tee, all with a mountain backdrop. Out of view, with a view. A stunning success. It felt unscenic to put three boxes and my bike in a laundry hamper outside the van so I could settle in, but I had already filled up the front seats with other supplies. Too much stuff. I immediately determined that popping the top and sleeping in the upper bed was a non-starter. The fabric had no thermal value and I needed to keep the space small to keep it warm. Also, if the back seat was folded flat into my bed, it blocked access to the cupboards of food and dishes. This meant that at any given time, I would need to choose between drive mode, kitchen mode, and sleep mode. I put on some music to make it cozy, the band Mount Joy recommended by Andrew. And happily, I started cooking pasta and drinking what I like to call cooking wine. I reluctantly got acquainted one bump and scrape at a time with Hober's awkward angles, low ceilings, and dim light. The pasta didn't have much taste and the wine lacked character. Cheaper ingredients in a budget bottle likely accounted for the disparity in what I was accustomed to back home. Or should I say, my old home. I also recalled that American food, while cheaper, generally has less nutrition in it. The average produce generally has less flavor. I also reminded myself that I didn't cook much at home, so in addition to learning how to live on the road and on a budget, I would also need to improve my culinary skills. Just add it to the list. After a bland dinner, I cleaned up, flattened the bed, and immediately realized that I was exhausted. When the sun hid behind the mountains, it took any remaining warmth with it. I decided to get under the blankets and conserve my own heat. As I tried not to shiver, I pondered the new complex issues I faced in the supposedly simplistic reality. I would now be at the mercy of the weather, the daylight, my own physical needs, all of this in a way that I'd never previously experienced. Far more effort, it seemed, would go into participating in and sustaining my own existence. Where will I sleep used to be the same answer most days. What will I eat wasn't that relevant until the menu was in front of me. How much daylight do I have to work with was usually unimportant except for outdoor tennis games and the rare hike. What the temperature is no longer fit into the category of small talk. Now all these relevant questions and their volatile answers would substantially shape the riverbanks of my daily experience. At 3.30 a.m., I woke up disoriented. My breath had condensed on my pillow, leaving it damp and wet. My back was stiff and my jaw was clenched. I was almost in a cold sweat. It's hard to call it sleep when your body is clearly struggling through the night. I was freezing. I crawled into the front of the van and turned it on. The blasting cold air quickly warmed and within 10 minutes I was comfortable again. It felt like a waste of gas to have a car idling. I needed to move to warmer weather for this to all make sense. In the morning, I didn't make breakfast in the van and instead waited till I got back to the house. 
I felt a small sense of accomplishment, if only because I had proved to the boys that there really was a van coming, that I could sleep in it and survive in the wild. Though I was surprisingly exhausted, it gave me enough energy that I did my first workout since before I'd left Canada. I felt weak, stiff, and sore, but alive. We need to celebrate small accomplishments. We often refuse to celebrate until we have achieved a large goal, and we are often too hard on ourselves along the way. Success is not embodied only by the end result. It is the process of exploration and completion. When you are clear on your goals and you do something that moves you closer to them, that is what deserves our praise and recognition. After nearly three weeks, this was my last day in Bozeman. A sense of nostalgia governed my actions. One more walk past the old houses, one more coffee at Rockford Coffee Shop, a few more moments of sustained eye contact. I was going to miss this place I never meant to come to. After a celebratory sushi dinner, the boys and I had a great conversation, and I could tell they were slightly hesitant, but I was proud of them for stepping into the uncomfortable. We talked about a range of topics, introverts and extroverts, identifying your needs, life in Bozeman, the roommate dynamic, the direct communication. For them, a recorded conversation was a new type of environment to share in. For me, it was practice to see if I could create the kind of environment I wanted. Learning and contribution for us all. We are all pulled between the desire for comfort and the desire for discomfort. We want what makes us feel certain, but also we crave each in our own way, novelty, risk, and adventure. We choose to have different people in our lives that make us feel different ways. When someone trustworthy pushes you into a place of discomfort by leading you to vulnerability, remind yourself that the discomfort you feel is valid, but that you can still choose to accept the invitation. When familiar people push you into the unfamiliar, consider letting them. You might find it's exactly the exploration that you wanted. You stand to lose less than it feels like. The next morning, I said goodbye to the boys, placed Wilson on the dashboard, and pulled Hober away from Story Street. I traced my way to the highway I'd been waiting for. Finally, I was on the road. I hadn't driven this van on the highway yet, and I quickly confirmed that Hober would never receive a scout badge for acceleration or speed. The canvas top started whistling when we accelerated above 40 miles per hour. But all of this only elicited a smile from me. As much as it was too cold at night and I wanted to get south as soon as possible, I knew that I needed to enjoy this journey. I stuck to the slow lane, which I had been allergic to all my driving life, and took in the scenery. Montana landscapes slowly blend from untamed mountains into semi-arid ranch lands, occasionally sprinkling in hoodoos, dry riverbeds, and crumbling cliffs. Okay, I thought, where would I like my mind to be focused? In an effort to be more mindful, I chose three words, three intentions that would guide my first day on the road. When choosing them, we should listen to what comes easily because we all intuitively know what we need. I was surprised when the first intention was safety because I don't much value safety, but it made sense. New van, new roads, new habits. Unfamiliarity is the recipe for accidents and injuries. I already had a cut on my forehead from an unnecessary interaction with a sharp corner on a cupboard. The second was peace. I didn't want to put pressure on the situation or get stuck in my head just because I had the van and was finally in action. I just still wanted to take it all in, resting behind the wheel. The third was positivity. 
It was easy to start thinking about how I'll be lonely, that I could get a flat tire, or about the ambiguity of my future, both on a day-to-day level and also an existential one. It would take some mental fortitude to be able to simply focus on what felt good, what could be celebrated, and what I was excited for. Small accomplishments and gentle confidence. Uncertain circumstances can be a breeding ground for doubt. But it's important to remember that doubt need only play a small role in helping us understand the shape of upcoming obstacles. After that, we need to train our focus away from the identified risks and begin to explore the opportunity and chart the path forward towards it. The more we focus there, the more we gain the necessary clarity to achieve the desired outcomes. Every car on the road passed Hober. Semis with full trailers actually needed to change lanes quickly just to dodge us, even when they were climbing hills. Hober is a beige traffic cone, a stray deer, a lost hedgehog. Looking out the windshield, watching every single vehicle pass us, it was hard to believe that we were not somehow moving backwards. Wilson's leaves, slightly greener now than they'd been a few days earlier, they gently rustled as we puttered along. I was so ready to be on the road that not even the whistling canvas above me bothered me at all. Pulling into Billings at 3pm, I started to strategize for the evening. I could still make it to northern Wyoming, but my energy was low and Hober was slow. It would be dark by 6.30, and it's much easier to get situated when I could still see my surroundings. Still, I wanted to cross at least one state line today. I found a free campsite on a hunting reserve about 30 minutes off the highway down a dirt road, and I made it there with 30 minutes left of daylight remaining. The camping area itself was nothing more than a gently sloping hill, but I didn't even bother pulling out the leveling bricks. The only other campers had a camouflaged hunting tent, a truck, and a small fire pit built not too far from a sign that said, No Fires. Just as I had finished moving my possessions into the front seat and settling in to make dinner, I saw two hunters in the distance walking down the hill, guns folded in the crook of their arms. Their dogs bounded ahead towards the tent, tongues flailing, clearly not concerned that they'd all come back empty-handed. I heard an elk, or something, holler in the distance. I'm no hunter, and I don't even remotely look like one. My new neighbors gazed over at my hippie Volkswagen, with the laundry hamper and the bike parked outside the passenger door, the guitar in the front seat. I didn't belong. They stared at me. I waved. They waved back and then carried on being casually tough and seasoned while building a fire. For a moment, I thought about asking them if I could interview them or something, but I was exhausted, hungry, and ready for bed. I checked the clock. Strange, it was only 7pm. Why was I tired? It had been a pretty short and relaxing day. I made dinner, Annie's mac and cheese with a can of tuna, drank some bland wine, and once again was uninspired by my cooking. I put on a chill acoustic playlist that reminded me too much of loved ones, crawled under the covers, and tried to remind myself that melancholic nights were part of the journey, and that they wouldn't require any less work than cheery nights. For the first time since I'd left Canada, I confronted profound loneliness, tinged with regret. My mind drifted to my family, to my brother who had chosen distance, to the friends that had never really said goodbye. I missed Brit. I thought about how she would find something positive about this, how it would be a game to figure out how to arrange all the supplies in the van, how she would want to have dinner and cheers our wine cups before eating. Cheers, I thought. My throat constricted. In the van, the low music took on a muffled, tinny, lonely timbre. I felt like I was in a lighthouse with waves crashing on the shore, nobody around to hear them except me. 
a single light bulb somehow casting incandescent shadows on creaking walls. But here, the watery waves were stone mountains, and mountains crest and crash slowly on a geologic timescale only witnessed by the moon on clear nights like this one. A few tardy tears finally began to tally who and what I had left behind. What was I doing out here in northern Wyoming under strange stars? What have I done? God, it was cold tonight. Positivity and hunters be damned. I was alone. Oh,